Lika River. And we got that name because uh, when a river is flowing through its banks, it can be an amazingly beautiful thing. And yes, once again, I got to see that river that is so very dear to my heart. It's Sugar Creek up in the Washtenaw Mountains. We were there again uh, yesterday. It was so pretty. But when that river is inside its banks, it's wonderful. It's a, a, a nice thing. We have beautiful rivers in Arkansas. But if that river comes outside of its banks, then we call it a flood. And it is not so beautiful at that point. At that point, it becomes destructive. It can become devastating. And lives can become lost at that point. Now, we have a life that has been created by God. I don't think any of us in here would probably argue that because that's kind of one of those things that draws us in here together is that we know that God has created us and so we are kind of drawn into that relationship or toward that relationship with him. And some of you this morning are just kind of exploring that and saying, I'm willing to consider. And so you are in the process of exploring whether or not you want to choose to believe and follow. But many of us here do believe that God created us and God designed us and he has given us, that's why we're using this imagery of this riverbank, that God has given us this life kind of like a river and it flows inside of its riverbanks. And we're saying that God has provided us in our lives with some riverbanks. And as long as we are living our life inside of those boundaries, inside of those banks, then things are closer to what God would have for us in our lives. But as soon as we start to leave those boundaries, leave those riverbanks, we begin to become destructive in our lives, hurting not just ourselves, but the very people that we love and that are close to us. Leave those banks, leave those boundaries. It can be devastating and damaging, not just ourselves, but people we love. Now, in this series... Here comes why this has been rated PG, is because God created this amazing thing called sex. He created it. It's part of his design. He created that not just so that, that folks of the opposite sex can come together and have babies. That's not the only reason that he created sex the way he created it for us as his prized creation, human beings, but he also created it as part of this process for one man to give his entire life and self to this one woman and, and, and vice versa so that they are together and they are saying, I belong to you completely. And this is all part of this whole thing that God calls sex. I belong to you completely. I belong to you permanently and exclusively. I am yours. And the Bible says, God himself says, the two become one flesh. Now there's at least one thing, I said this last week, there's at least one thing I know about all of us, and there are several things that I'm assuming and I want to let you know what that is today. I'll start with me. Here's the one thing I believe that I know about all of us, and I'm going to put me on the hot seat here. I have missed God's standard in so many ways, in so many ways. I've missed it in some pretty devastating ways as well. I've missed his standard. I have missed his standard of sexual purity. And I stand here before you this morning as a broken person. 
I'm a broken person who is, because I've chosen to follow Jesus, I am in the process of being made new, of being repaired. And that's something that only God can really do in our lives. And I don't think I'm alone. The Bible tells us that we are all broken. And my hope is this morning that you are in the same process that I am in, and that is allowing Jesus to repair you as well, to make you new as well. I'm also making some assumptions this morning. I'm assuming several things. Assumption number one, I'm assuming that we are all this morning, all of us in this worship theater and all of us listening together online, that we are interested in following Jesus or we are checking out following Jesus and considering following Jesus. And so that's why we're here. Assumption number two is that if we are following Jesus or considering following Jesus, then we want to know what God has said, this is the life that I've designed for you. It's designed by him for us, and it would be his way, not necessarily my way, but his way. And if we're going to follow him, then we're following his way. And I'm assuming that we all want to know, okay, Jesus, what is this way that we would be following? And here's the third assumption I'm making. I'm assuming that if we are following Jesus, that we are actually following. (laughs) So as he reveals a step to us, then we are actually taking a step with him and following. Now, Here's the truth about many of us, myself certainly. When he shows me a step, sometimes I push back from that. And sometimes I'm resistant to that step. But eventually, because I am a follower of Jesus, eventually, it may take me some time, but eventually I do actually take that step and I keep following Jesus. So those are my assumptions this morning as we get started so you can kind of understand as we go maybe why I'm saying the things I'm saying or the way I'm saying them. So we have talked about these banks um, on the morality level of banks that God has placed there for us related to sexual purity. Bank number one uh, of this river is this right here, river bank number one. We talked about our eyes and we talked about our mind, what we bring into our eyes, the images we see, um, whether it's on the internet or it's on our phone or whether it's a real person and we're kind of eyeballing that person as they're walking close to us, looking them up and down, or as they're walking away from us and we think they don't even know, but everyone else behind you watching you knows as you're looking at them and looking them up and down. Those images we bring into our eyes um, and it feeds our lust. We talked about that with bank number one. And what lands through our eyes eventually, what comes through our eyes eventually lands in our mind. And then we dwell on that and we think on that. We fantasize about that and all of that feeds this thing called lust. And we said, okay, well how much of that according to God is acceptable? I mean, certainly it doesn't hurt to look, right? 
Doesn't hurt to look. I'm not touching anything. Doesn't hurt to look. Doesn't hurt to fantasize, think about it. Doesn't hurt, right? Well, God gave us an easy-to-follow standard. And here's the standard in four words. Not even a hint. (laughs) That's what he said. Not even a hint of that is okay. So that's if it is unrelated to your spouse. Not even a hint. Then we talked about bank number two. We talked about this last week. Now, bank number two has to do with words, whether they are written or whether they are spoken, either one. So it's the words we speak, it's the words we hear, it's the words we read, all of those words. Now, some of these words are just plain junk food. I mean, it's just giving us junk sex is all it is, just junk food, giving us some kind of gratification not related to our spouse, and it's words that we're reading or words that that we're hearing. It's just junk food. And there's a second kind, though, that's not junk food. It is junk food, but it is also very destructive, and those are words that are bonding words. Now, it can be junk food, but if it's related to your spouse, it's not junk food. It is sweet, 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 and it's bonding. They are bonding words. Now, these bonding words are words that get very personal. They're words that, that, that get more intimate into our hearts and our emotions, and they bond words that bond two people together. Now, it's great if you're both single and you're moving towards marriage. That's great. But if you're married and you're, you, you're using words that are bonding your heart to another heart of someone you're not married to, oh my goodness, you have left the boundaries, you have left the riverbanks, and your life is flooding and damage is happening. If we are married... We can't, how much is okay of this? And I'm talking about text messages. I'm talking about emails, phone calls, break room conversations, any of that. How much of that is okay according to God? Because, hey, we're not touching them. We're not t- how much is okay? And God says, not even a hint. Not even a little bit if you're married. Not even a little bit. We are not to bond our hearts and emotions with another person of the opposite sex, we're not, unless it is our spouse. Now, God designed all of this to be experienced inside the safety and the protection of marriage. One expert describes our minds like a wild Mustang running free and running wild, running loose. A mind, a wild Mustang of a mind that is mating at will, even in the mind, mating at will when it sees someone attractive. Now, ladies may be thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, but guys are like, oh yeah, I understand. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. I mean, ladies may completely understand too. But one expert described the mind that way. 
And we think to ourselves, if it's something we're thinking on, men or women, something that's just right here, contained right here in our mind, we haven't told anybody, hadn't said anything to anybody, but it's right here, and we think to ourselves, it's just my thoughts. Just my thoughts. I haven't done anything with my body. It's just my thoughts. But according to Jesus, how much of that is okay? I encourage you to go read the Sermon on the Mount because he took what looked like some laws we might be able to possibly live by, which we can't, but we look at him and say, I might be able to do that, and he, but we can't. And he raised the standard even higher, and he said, if we are even thinking about that in our mind, then we have already sinned. It's as if we have already done that. So God says, no, not even a hint of that. In fact, what needs to happen, instead of this wild Mustang of a mind running free and running loose and mating at will in the mind, this expert said that we need to put a corral around that Mustang of a mind. We need to corral it. We need to control it. If it's a river, we need to keep it in the riverbanks. If it's a Mustang, we need to keep it in the corral. Now, there's a couple of types of people, though, that are going to approach our corral. Even if we try to corral our mind, there are two kinds of people that are going to approach that corral and try to get that mind free, that Mustang free. The first type of person, it's people who find you attractive. People who find you attractive are going to naturally approach your corral but we have to keep the Mustang in the corral. There's a second type of person that is going to approach your corral, and that second type of person is the person that you find attractive. One lady wrote, speaking of uh, herself and speaking of some of her friends, she wrote and said this, speaking of what we see, she said, presentation is everything. It's not just for the food channels. <laughs> and there are things out there that you naturally find attractive. And I think her point, part of her point is this, that sometimes a person might know what someone finds attractive and they might accentuate that in a way that is designed to be looked at. Now, not everybody does that, certainly. But she was speaking for herself and her friends at a very specific stage of her life. And she said, I knew presentation was everything. People you find attractive are going to approach your corral, and people who find you attractive are going to approach your corral. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is perhaps a reason why Job in the Old Covenant did something to keep people away from his corral. And we're talking about not social settings, really, just in general. We're talking about sexual integrity. And what did he do in order to keep people away from his corral? Here's what he, he did in Job chapter 31, verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. In other words, the principle there I think we can learn is if we will learn to starve the attractions, they will go away. 
if we starve the attractions. He said, I wasn't going to feed that lust with my eyes. I'm going to starve that attraction and it will go away. And after all, then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, does he, speaking of God, does he not see my ways? He's saying, of course he does. Does he not count every step I take? And he's including, obviously, what he sees and what he thinks. Does God not see it all? Absolutely. Job is saying he sees it all. He goes on in verse 7. He says, if my steps have turned from the path, in other words, if I have left God's path and decided now to follow my own path, and then he says, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled. So now he's drawing two things together. What he sees, and then obviously implied there is what we think, and then it goes to our hands, our physical body. He's making a connection. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, verse 8, then he says, so it's an if-then. If this happens, then this happens. He says, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. He's saying, if I've done this, then I'm going to reap what I sow. Verse 9. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman. Now, let's pause here for a moment. So he has talked to us a little bit about his eyes, his mind, and now his heart and his body. Our heart, our emotions are all tied up together with our eyes and our mind and our body. They all are tied up together. And our eyes, our mind, our heart, and our emotions, all of those together are going to lead our bodies to do something. And here is where this really becomes crystal clear from what Job is saying. He says, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door. In other words, if I am Rick Springfield and I'm wanting Jesse's girl. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> If I am Rick Springfield and I'm wanting Jesse's girl, and every time I see her, oh my goodness, Jesse's girl. Every time I hear her voice, Jesse's girl. I just know. I just know. I, right? That's if I'm lurking at my neighbor's door. In other words, if I am wanting what my what belongs to what is a relationship that belongs to another person. If I am wanting a relationship that belongs to that man, or if you ladies are wanting a relationship that belongs to that woman, I am lurking at my neighbor's door. It happens with eyes. It happens in our minds. And it quickly ties into our heart and our emotions. 
We begin dreaming about what is his or fantasizing about what is hers. And it involves, again, our eyes and our mind and our heart and eventually our body. And here's what happens. Lurking at the neighbor's door, we're going to begin to find ways to physically be in the same room or same place with that person. Lurking at my neighbor's door. Job then describes an if-then. He says, if this happened to me, then, he says, then I am going to reap what I sow. And he gets pretty graphic with that. I, I, I'm not going to read it, but he gets great. He says, I'm going to reap what I sow in the relationship with my, with my wife. And he's saying, I haven't done that because of all of that. I've made a covenant, and it started all the way back here. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Job is describing this same wild stallion that altogether involves our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our emotions, and it all leads our physical bodies to do something. So that brings us to our third bank and our final bank where we're going to end with this series. And that final bank is this conglomeration, really, of all of these things, of our eyes and our minds, our words, our emotions, our heart, and together then it makes up our body. And if we want to be safe, so, to, you know, if, if when you go home at night and you want to be safe, before you go to bed, what do you check before you go to bed? Front door lock, back door lock, garage door down. We want to be locked up safe, don't we? We'll sleep better if we know all the doors are locked. If you, if you th even think that one of your doors is unlocked, are you going to sleep very well? Some, some of you might because you may be braver than the rest of us. I don't know. Most of us, we're going to go check that lock. We're going to go make sure we're locked up tight. And, the, and that we're safe. Let me give you a, another way to think about this. Um, in your car, um, we want to be locked up safe in our car, don't we? Um, think of the most frightening place you can think of in Little Rock. Um, I grew up in Little Rock. So I, I remember when I was uh, 16 years old, um, I had a meeting that was in downtown Little Rock. And that was before we had the nice river park, and it was nice and pretty, and it was like, you thought, yeah, let's go downtown. No, 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 we didn't think about going downtown when I was growing up. Downtown, mm -mm, there was no Julie Brown downtown there. Uh-uh, it was, it was not good downtown back in the, in the 80s. And, um, and especially once the sun went down, I mean, Ninth Street, that was the red light district, I was just a couple blocks off 9th Street at 16 years old for my meeting. I don't know why my parents sent me off by myself in my 1973 turd brown metallic Ford Maverick. I have no idea why. But I drove everywhere, all over the place. And so that was just another place, another meeting. And it was dark, and it was, it was nasty, and it was downtown. And I got done with the meeting. I walked back to my car. 
you can only imagine, just imagine a little suburban boy, downtown Little Rock, blonde hair, blue eyes, walking to his car. That was me. Whatever you can imagine, that was me. And so I get in my car, and so what's the first thing you do when you're, first of all, let me ask, can you imagine where is the worst place for you you can think of in Little Rock, okay? And you're leaving that place at night, walking through the parking lot and getting your car. The first thing I want to ask you is, well, what are you doing in the worst place in Little Rock? <laughs> no, why are you there? But I need you to be there for just a moment in your mind. So you're probably going to do the same thing I did as soon as I got in my car. What? You locked that front door, don't you? And you are good to go. But wait, there's three other doors. You don't just lock the driver's door, do you? You don't just lock the driver's door and the passenger door, do you? Unless you have two doors, do you? If you have four doors, how many doors are you going to make sure are locked? And back in the 80s, of course, you had to push those suckers down. What would they do today? I have no... <laughs> they, would be, they would be calling 911. <laughs> how, do I, how do I... On star, on star. How do I lock myself safe in my car? You got to hit those buttons. You would hit all four. Today, we would just hit the auto lock, right? You get them. But you wouldn't lock just one door and feel safe. You're going to lock all four doors of your car. If you were so lucky as to have a four-door, you would lock them all. That's what I did. Otherwise, we don't feel safe. You're not, I, I wouldn't have just locked one door. If we are going to get to a safe place regarding the boundaries that God has set and these, these riverbanks we've been talking about, we can't address just one of them. We're going to have to make sure all four doors are locked tight and we are the only ones who can do that in our own lives. I want to be safe. I've got to lock them down. All of them. We have to guard all four doors of our sexual lives. Our eyes, which I want to include with our minds. So our eyes and our mind. Door number one, we got to lock it. Door number two, our words. Those conversations that we have. And whether it's text, email, or whether it's a conversation, or whether it's something we're taking into our life from other sources. We've got to lock that door safely. The third door, we've got to lock down our emotions and our hearts. We've got to lock them down, not from the outside world. We've got to lock them down from a, uh, a perspective of sexual integrity. We've got to lock those hearts and emotions. And here's the fourth door. We've got to lock our body down. We, we have to lock our physical presence down so that we're not in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. So that we don't lurk at our neighbor's door. There's an old saying, I think you're probably familiar with this. And this kind of goes along with us leaving just one of those doors unlocked. Maybe we have three locked down tight, but we just left one unlocked. This is what can happen. We sow a thought, we reap an action. 
We then sow an action and we reap a habit. We sow a habit, we reap a character, and we sow a character and we reap our destiny. You say, but... Harley, okay, okay, I, I'm with you. But Harley, the temptation is so overwhelming at times. It is so strong. And I feel like that I have failed before. But I want you to know this. If we just want to look at temptation for just a moment by itself, temptation is never a sin in and of itself, by itself. And if we need any proof of that, we'd look no further than Jesus himself. The book of Hebrews goes into this explanation of how, because it's written to Hebrews, how Jesus is our high priest. The, the Hebrews had a high priest. And they say, Jesus is our high priest. And then it goes into this. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours, speaking of Jesus, understands our weaknesses. For Now, really understand this. For he faced all, not some, not a little portion, not just enough to say, hey, I made it. He faced all the same testings that we do. Yet, he did not sin. We need no more proof than that to know that the temptation itself is not a sin. It's what we do with that temptation. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says we need to do with that temptation. This is the very next verse, verse 16. So, because of this, in other words, because of this, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There... We will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. That's what the writer of Hebrews says that we need to do. But here's what we tend to do. We begin to entertain that temptation. We begin to hang out with that temptation. And yeah, we can still say no, but we get a little close to it and comfortable with it. And we're thinking about it, spending more time with the temptation. And that is when the temptation turns into sin. As we begin to dwell on it in our mind. That is allowing that person or that instance, whatever we're dealing with here, that is allowing them into our corral with us. And we're allowing that temptation possibly to play out in our mind as we think through that. And if they are in the corral of our mind, we will soon be looking for ways to be around them physically in real life, person to person. In the beginning, just their presence will be good. Just break room conversation, just finding a way to get close, to be there. To allow, we slowly make plans in our mind. 
to allow what is in our mind to happen in real life. Now that's why in week number two we gave you some maneuvers. We gave you these maneuvers, bounce, strike, capture, and shield. And here's what we said. I I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We said we have to learn to bounce our eyes. When we see something that is is pleasing and we should not be dwelling on it. So it is giving us some kind of gratification, but we know we, should, we need to bounce our eyes immediately and look at something else. We need to bounce our eyes. That's very literal. I don't mean that figuratively. Bounce our eyes. Second was strike. We need to strike it with that verse that says, not even a hint. And then we need to capture that thought, as the New Testament says, to capture our thoughts and make them obedient to Jesus. And then we need to raise our shields. And I said the best shield we have then is that other verse that says run from temptation. So raise that shield and get out of dodge. That's that's what we need to do. And last week we added three more things to that. We gave you a three-question test. I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week. And so those maneuvers plus the three-question test all together means if we are using those in our lives, it means we are going more likely, we're more likely going to do the next right thing. And that will be to just move right past that temptation. To not stop there and linger and hang out with the temptation, but to just move right on past it. You see, when we make a choice to follow Jesus, it really means something. We're not just putting a label on our jacket that says, I'm a Christian, or a sticker on our car. It's not just a label. That's why you don't very often hear me talking about being a Christian, or talking about or asking you if you are a Christian because we have turned that word well we haven't turned it into one it always was meant to be a label it was used in a very derogatory way toward people who were following Jesus as a label oh they're one of them a Christian we, we just don't use that word much in Stuttgart Harvest Church And here's why. Because Jesus didn't use that word much. At all. (laughs) He didn't use it. Jesus was not interested in what label someone put on to their life. But he was interested in this one thing. Are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me? Those three things combined equal following Jesus. He was real interested in that. So when I decide to submit my life to Jesus and follow him, I do not become perfect and sinless. My sins are just paid for by Jesus. And as I follow Jesus, and if you're a Jesus follower, as you follow Jesus, we still fall And we still fail. But what characterizes us is this. When we fall and when we fail, with the help of God's Spirit, we get back up again 
He dusts us off. He cleans us up. And we keep following and we keep chasing after Jesus. For those who have submitted their lives to Jesus, we never get kicked out of God's family for falling down. We never get kicked out of God's family for failing. If you have placed your life in the hands of Jesus, I want you to know this today. You are in a safe place and He will never, never let you go. But know this too. It will be evident to you and to me about my life, to you and your life. It will be evident because you have placed your life in the hands of Jesus. You will not and I will not spend the rest of my life running away from Jesus. Let me say that again. If we've placed our life into the hands of Jesus, we are safe there. And He will never let us go. And it will be evident to us, because if we've placed our lives in the hands of Jesus, we will not spend the rest of our lives running away from Jesus. We will fall. And we will fail, but we won't run away. You say, Harley, how do you know this? How can you say that? Because Jesus said it. I want you to listen how Jesus describes this. Because I love this verse, John 3.16. I love this verse, but the reality, please hear this. The reality is... We cannot take John 3.16 and separate it from John 3.17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. It's a package. So what does Jesus say about this whole thing of falling and failing and running? To when I get to the warning away from Jesus, here's how he puts it. Now, when I get to the word believe... I want you to understand what that word means. And here's what it means. Believe, in the context of this Greek word, believe means to cling to. To rely on. Okay? To cling to, to rely on. Every time I say that word, understand what's being said. John 3.16 for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in, clings to, relies on Him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Amazing verse. Every bit of that verse is true. But so is every bit of the next verse. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. In other words, he didn't come here to send me to hell. That's not why he came. He came to save the world through him. Verse 18. This is every bit as much true as the previous two verses. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in, relies on, clings to 
him. That's Jesus. But anyone who does not believe in, rely on, cling to Jesus, him has already been judged for not believing in, relying on, clinging to God's one and only Son. Verse 19, every bit as true as the previous verses. And the judgment is based on this fact. Okay, so here is the fact. Here's what we need to, one of the things in this whole passage we need to know. God's light came into the world. The light was being Jesus, okay? God's light came into the world. But people loved the darkness more than the light. How do we know this? He tells us how. Now, I just want to remind you, these are the words of Jesus. How do we know this, that they love the darkness more than light? Their actions were evil. Their actions, what he's saying is, if you were to characterize the direction of their life, it is not a life pursuing God, following God, it's a life running away from God. Verse 20, every bit as much truth in this verse as the previous verses. Here we go. All who do evil hate the light. And here's the thing. Notice this. Refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. What Jesus is saying is there are some people... If the light is Jesus, they're going to go the other way with their life. Because they don't want to deal with conviction. They don't want to deal with with God rearranging our priorities and rearranging our lives. So they go the other direction. That characterizes their life. Verse 21, just as true as all the previous, previous verses. Jesus speaking, but those who do what is right come to the light. Not away from it. They go to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. We can't take John 3.16 and isolate it and say, if you just believe that Jesus is God's Son and you agree with God that He's perfect and you agree with God that He died on the cross, then hey, you're good to go because that's not what it says. When you go all the way through, you realize that believing in, relying on, clinging to Jesus means this. Something with your life is going after Jesus and not running away from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus is giving us a picture of what it really looks like for those who have really chosen to submit to and to follow him. It's a picture of this Jesus who loved us with his all. That's how the picture starts. And in return, this picture then is a picture of those who are following him by loving him with they're all. Jesus is describing what it looks like 
we are going in as deep with God as we were in the world. We're going into this life as deep with God in this life as I was going deep into the world. I am now going deep into my relationship of chasing after, pursuing, loving God. For the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. That is the description that Jesus gives us. It's not my description. It's the description of Jesus. And as I end this series today, I just simply want to ask you this. Have you submitted your life to Jesus and begun following him? We're not talking about a label. We're not talking about putting on a label that says, hey, I'm a Christian. Yep, I go to Stuttgart Harvest Church on Sundays. Mm, Sometimes. Yep. Got the label. Jesus is not interested in your label. He's interested in this. Are you following Jesus? And I just, if, if you're not this morning, I just, I, I just beg you. Will you choose this morning to say, Jesus, you died on the cross for the sins of the world, and that includes my sins. And because of that, if this is what your heart is saying right now, because of that, because you paid the price for the sins of the world, that can include me, Jesus. Please include me. Your word tells me that you will include me in that. You died for my sins. And right now, Jesus, I am believing in, relying on, and I am going to cling to you. My way. That is a picture of what repentance is called. I was headed this way, my way, and I'm turning my life around to head your way, Jesus, to follow you. And what did Jesus say? Those who are following him are running to the light. Did it say you will never stumble and fall? No. It said, you just keep running to the light. The Holy Spirit in your life will help pick you up, dust you off, clean you off, and send you back on your way, running after pursuing Jesus. But if we are running away from Jesus, we must seriously ask this question. Am I following Jesus according to what Jesus said? This is what followers do. Is that me? And if it's not, will you simply say to Jesus with your heart, I, because you you paid the price for my sins, I'm going to rely on and cling to, believe in you, Jesus. And I'm going to turn my life from this direction. I'm going to follow you. If that's what you're saying right now on the back of your connection card or on the online version, will you say, and let us know, you're making Jesus the boss of your life right now. It means he was not the boss of your life, but right now, And for the rest of your life, he is the boss. Will you let us know? We want to celebrate with you. We want to get you some information. Give us a good email address, phone number, something so we can text you. We want to get you information today. Here's my second question as we wrap this up. Have you, like me, in some way fallen You just fell and you fell hard. And your life flooded. 
And you not only hurt yourself by coming out of these boundaries, you hurt the people around you. Have you done that? If you have not yet allowed the Holy Spirit to pick you back up, if you are, are saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus and I've fallen, I've fallen hard, but I, I, I find myself kind of stuck here. Will you allow God's Spirit to help pick you up? Will you turn, repent? Will you repent from, turn away from what you were doing, from what your eyes were doing and what your mind was doing and, and what your words were doing and what your heart and emotion? No, I say don't follow your heart. Jesus didn't want you to follow your heart. He wants you to follow Him. Turn from all those things and follow Jesus. Will you allow God to help you lock those things down? Will you allow God to help you get your life back into the riverbanks? And he began, can begin to heal you and your life and heal you and the ones you love and the, and, and the people in your life. And over time, with the help of God and working in it and on it, God will bring healing and restoration. He will not leave you or the people you love in that misery. Will you? Allow him to do that. May we get up and may we keep following him. We have the choice to live our lives like a river. Beautiful. Or to live our lives like a flood. Devastating. And I just ask you this morning, don't give up. Don't give up. I ask you this morning, don't take the escape route. Don't give up on your marriage and try to create some kind of intimacy inside of a new relationship because you just don't want the hassle and the hard work of trying to cultivate intimacy with your spouse. Don't give up. Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit is ready to walk with us as we choose to follow Jesus. Will you join me as we pray? Jesus, thank you for having John record those words of yours, Jesus. God, you didn't just say that you believed in love. You did something. You lived it. You came and you died for the sins of the world so that everyone who responds to you by submitting their life to you, by running to you, by clinging to you, they will have their past forgiven, the present sins forgiven, our future sins forgiven and paid for. And we thank you, Jesus. We are hopeless. I am hopeless without you. And the proof that we have submitted our lives to you is that we keep running to you. The light of the world. And even when we fail and even when we fall, we get up with the help of the Holy Spirit. We get up forgiven and we chase after you again, Jesus. 
and we keep chasing after you, Jesus, and we keep following you. Jesus, you describe those who belong to you as a people who keep running to you. And those who don't belong to you keep running away from you. May we choose you today. May we choose life today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.